The guts are very likely to be affected. You might report bouts of indigestion, attacks of wind, discomfort on moving the bowels. It is possible that the skin has erupted or begun to itch or sting, even though no lesion or rash is visible. The heart seems to beat, you report, with alarming force or rapidity. The breath is shallow or painful. Your head hurts all the time, or only intermittently, in different places each time, or in the same place, insistently. Curiously, no matter the symptoms with which you present, and you may or may not have noticed this fact yourself, they seem clustered on the left side of your body. The pain, you admit, in answer to the doctor's question, is not severe, nor are you sure that it is getting any worse. But it concerns you, you say, understating now the terror that has brought you here, and you thought it was important to have it checked out. Time, the time spent being afraid and the time you imagine that you have left, has seemed to contract to this brief interlude, the crucial encounter between doctor and patient. It seems to you now, however, as the physician pauses to consider what you have just described, and glances again at your notes before proceeding to the physical examination, that time has become elastic once more, and stretches around you in the consulting room, filled with uncertainty. You might reflect, in the interval before the doctor speaks or lays hands on your trembling person, that you have neglected to mention your most striking symptom. It is this. In the day since you first suspected your body of its treachery, you have started to live at the edge of your own life, to withdraw into a state of mind at once alert and somnolent. You listen constantly in a kind of trance for communications from your body. It is as if you have become a medium, and your organs a company of fretful ghosts, whispering their messages from the other side. In your daily life, loved ones, friends and colleagues have started to notice that you are hardly there. Occasional occulted signals come through to them, to the effect that you are unwell, but the news, you have remarked, seems hardly to have registered in their minds. It is they who seem to you distracted, unperturbed by the mounting evidence of your ill health. You have long been accustomed to trying to control your body, to neutralize in advance its unpredictable, unruly nature. Now it seems that you have to take charge of other people too, to persuade them, friends and family alike, that there is something amiss. You can feel all certainty slipping away as the face of your doctor, like the face of the last friend or loved one you told of your fear, fails to set itself in an expression of unalloyed assurance. It has seemed to you lately that nobody has been taking you or your symptoms seriously. Now it appears that nobody, not even your doctor, who knows you so well, will give you the straight answer you so anxiously need. What does this patient, whom we are about to call a hypochondriac, with all that the word implies about the reality of his or her symptoms, and the kind of person who might report them, look like to the physician, or sound like to the family members, friends, employers, and colleagues who have been hearing for some time now the same litany of pain or discomfort, the same fears canvassed, the same self-absorption tediously expressed? This is not a question that troubles the hypochondriac in the grip of his or her fear. I did not myself think to ask it in late adolescence or in my twenties, when, in the aftermath of my parents' early deaths, I became convinced that I would be the next to die, and began to interpret every stray discomfort as a sign of the dread disease that would take me away. It comes as no surprise now to discover in the literature on hypochondria that a child who grows up in close proximity to illness and death is considerably more likely to develop hypochondriacal tendencies as a young adult. Nor, still, does the question occur to me on those occasions, they are becoming rarer as I get older, though I suppose middle age must soon bring some worries that will linger, 
when fatigue or stress or a long period of unproductive work seems to bring on the old fears, and I slip too easily into the habits of thought, apprehension, and assurance-seeking described above. It is only later, when the doctor's appointments are over, the dull recital of my symptoms at an end and the diagnosis again a minor one, that I wonder how I must have seemed to those around me. The answer is probably not one that I would really care to hear. The hypochondriac is well known, anecdotally, to all of us. This was confirmed each time I mentioned I was writing a book about hypochondria. We all know at least one. As a character type, he or she is pretty disreputable, a malingering drain on one's capacity for patience and empathy, at worst a parasite on scarce health care resources. Hypochondriacs are almost always other people. Few of us care to admit to the levels of delusion and self-regard that we deprecate in the personality of the hypochondriac. We behave in this regard as if the boundary between sensible vigilance or precaution and pathological preoccupation or...